0: We're kicking off a brand new series today that I am extremely excited about. It's simply titled Galatians, because we're going to journey through one chapter per week over the next six weeks, the book of Galatians, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. And um, this book has this theme of freedom that I hope over the next six weeks that you can just embrace fully. I don't know about you, but sometimes living a Christian lifestyle can feel less like freedom and more like to-do lists and more like chores and more like duties. And that is far from God's best for us. And I want us, as we journey through this book of the Bible, to understand the implications of what Jesus has done for us and what it means for us and how we can have an approach to serving God that's life-giving and not draining. So um, uh, just a little context, Uh, the Apostle Paul, we call him the Apostle Paul. That might sound like a churchy word to you. Apostle simply means that he wasn't like a pastor. He didn't stay put in one church and care for one congregation or one group of believers. He was an apostle, meaning he traveled and started churches. And he would go to different areas and he would start churches there. And then from time to time, he would correspond with those churches by means of uh, letters that he would write to them to encourage them. Them, to correct them, to rebuke them, to uh, tell them the great things that they're doing, and tell them things that they needed to correct or fix or or kind of uh, mold and adapt to be more like what God designed for them. And one of the churches, one of the areas that He planted churches was in this area of Glacia, which would be modern-day Turkey. And um, as He Uh, corresponds to them with this letter, the letter to the Galatians. Um, He kind of has a chip on his shoulder, as we're going to see from the very beginning, because he's heard some things that have disappointed him. He's heard some things that aren't correct and don't make sense based on his previous interactions with them when he was there in person. And so he's writing them this letter to correct them. And I want to go ahead, if you don't mind, and just jump in uh, to this book of the Bible. And we're going to try to accomplish a lot today. And you pray for me that I don't go too long in the heat. Verse number 1, Galatians chapter 1, Paul. And let me just stop right there. Uh, in, in the letters that the Apostle Paul writes, I love that he identifies himself As someone that God has made him, which is far different from who he used to be. Isn't that a hope that we have in Christ that we're not who we used to be? For those of you who don't know much about uh, the biblical history or this character, this man named Paul, he was once a man who opposed the church. His name was actually Saul by birth, and he was a Jew, and he was well-learned in Jewish laws and customs, and one of his missions in life was to stop the movement of the local church. That after Jesus had given his life and ascended to be with the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit descended in Acts chapter 2 on a group of believers, and the church was born, and this movement began to gain traction, and one of his goals was to stop the church, and just the fact that he identifies himself as Paul who God gave him that name and that new identity rather than Saul is such an amazing, we don't even have to read but one word in this book to be encouraged, that God can do so much in our lives if we'll just surrender to him and allow him to make us into who he wants to be. So he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just his introduction is so inspiring, just so encouraging that he would write greetings based on the rescue that God has offered for you and for me from this present evil age. That we live in an age, just like Paul lived in an age that was, that was evil, that was, that was attempting to drag us down and bring the worst out of us, but he's greeting us with the, the peace and the grace that's offered from a God that offers us so much better than this world could ever offer us. Now, we're going to camp out on the next couple of verses uh, for the majority of our time together because this is really uh, the crux of us understanding this book is the principle that he's about to lay out for us here. And I want us to spend some time and and really dig in and understand exactly what Paul is meaning when he makes some statements to us. With a chip on his shoulder, I imagine, to the church, he says, "'I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel.'" You were called by the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. You say, I didn't realize there was a different gospel. I only thought there was one gospel. And there is only one true gospel. But as Paul identifies here, that there are counterfeit gospels. That there are people who would teach things that aren't true. And this church that he had gone and witnessed the birth of this movement in their towns... And he had seen them receive the grace of Christ. They are now being pushed in a direction to accept a gospel that isn't really a gospel at all. Which is really no gospel at all, verse 7. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And still today, centuries later, people are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to say this before we dive into some of the context here: is It's important for us to understand. It's important for me as a pastor to understand. And it's important for you, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, to understand that your opinion about what God would or should or could do never will trump the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because you think certain things about what it means to follow Jesus doesn't mean that that's the gospel. What we're reading is a letter that has been preserved for centuries where Paul is speaking to a group of people who had allowed themselves to accept a gospel that was perverted that wasn't the true gospel, that wasn't the gospel that he communicated to them to begin with, and didn't reflect the realities that God offered this group of believers. Verse number 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Pretty serious statements, pretty serious indictments that Paul is bringing against this church. I communicated to you a gospel of grace, and you received the gospel of grace, and now you have so quickly deserted, and you've allowed this perverted gospel to creep into your church and distort your view of God and what it means to follow him. Let me give you some context. Acts chapter 15, you can read. On a side note, if you want, addresses this issue more. Paul was called by God to go and spread the hope and the message of Jesus Christ, the one who he once persecuted and tried to stop people from following. He now was an advocate of Jesus Christ. And as he traveled and preached and shared the gospel of Jesus, he would instill truth and help them to understand the means by which the gospel had come to them but he specifically was called to go to a group of people called the Gentiles. See, there were Jewish followers, people of the religion Judaism, who God had sent the Messiah through, and they related to God through the law. They obeyed 613 man-made laws that had been Uh, put in place by priests and by religious leaders to help observe God and try to honor God and live life in such a way that we would give him our very best. But when Jesus came, he actually fulfilled the law. And and now the, the gospel, the hope that's found in Jesus wasn't extended just to the Jewish people, but it was also extended to the rest of the world. And so Paul's mission, he mainly went to Gentile areas, people who weren't formerly Jewish, who never claimed to observe the Jewish law, who had never related to God through the law. He went to them and proclaimed the good news that there's hope for you, that you can have a relationship with God, that he can rescue you from this present evil age. And so he goes to this church and they received the message. And then there were some Jewish Christians that came along behind him. Remember, People who formerly related to God through the law, by observing uh, the right things that you should do and the wrong things you shouldn't do. And they came behind Paul and they began to tell this church, not only is the grace of God available to you, but you need to observe some Jewish laws in addition to that so that you can truly honor God. And really the biggest topic at hand that had caused such deceit was Jewish people by law on the eighth day after their birth were required to be circumcised, the men were. And to these Gentile men who had not been circumcised, these Jewish believers had come along and said, if you really want to follow Jesus, if you really want to be a true believer, you're going to need to be circumcised. Now, I don't know who started that ministry. I would want to be a part of that ministry if I'm being honest with you, but you can imagine the difficulty of a group of people who had received a message from Paul that there is grace available to you. It is free grace, and God can do something transformational in your life. And then people come along behind him and begin to say, oh, but by the way, there are some certain things that you need to do. You've got to observe some laws that we've been observing for a long time, but you haven't been observing, so you're going to have to kind of get on board. Can you imagine, like, coming to the membership meeting? You know, we're going to need you to, to do this and do that. And by the way, one of the things you're going to have to do to join our church is you're going to have to be circumcised. And just the tension is like, you know, you know, babe, you go, you join the church for us. I'm going to skip that day, and we'll skip that class. But that's what had happened and this became such a big deal that in Acts 15, there was a Jewish there was a council in Jerusalem of believers where they had to make a decision as to whether the Gentiles should be required to observe the law. And the decision was that, no, you shouldn't make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. And Paul gets word of this, and I can just imagine how outraged he is. What do you mean they're requiring you to observe the law? When did I tell you that? That is not the gospel that I communicated to you. That is not the gospel that I communicated to you. And what I'm afraid of, and if I'm being honest with you, what I've struggled with some in my life is having a gospel plus something else in order to find fulfillment in a relationship with Jesus And it's a perverted gospel. It's a distorted gospel. It's a a lifestyle that doesn't lead to freedom. And I want to take you back to the very beginning of your Bible, one of the first stories that we're going to find in Scripture, and help you understand the principle of what we're talking about this morning. And I want to communicate it to you in such a way that, hopefully, it will change your perspective of what it means to follow Jesus. So let's go real quickly to Genesis chapter number two and start in verse number eight. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Beautiful garden. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it, to take care of it. There's lots of trees. There's lots of foliage. It's beautiful. It's lush with life. But in the middle of the garden, he puts these two trees that are identified here in Genesis chapter two. One is the tree of life and one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes we forget that there are two trees in the middle of this garden. We just think about one tree that we're going to get to in a second. But there were two trees here. Verse number 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Of all the trees, and by the way, right there in the middle, there's one called the tree of life. But next to it, there's one called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the only thing that I'm telling you, Adam, is that you can't eat from it. Because as soon as you eat from it, you're going to die. Now that seems like a a simple instruction to me, right? It seems like a simple instruction to you. But we're faced as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ, with an approach to living a godly life that honestly reflects this situation. There's a tree of life approach to following Christ, and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil approach to following Christ. Let's see what happens. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Still understanding, serpent, which would be the enemy, our adversary, the devil, Satan, is confronting, is trying to distort the reality for the first man and woman that were put on the earth. And she's holding strong. She understands this is the truth. I'm not supposed to eat From that tree. I can eat from any other tree in the garden. Verse four, listen to what he says, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. I mean, do you really think if you eat from that tree you're gonna die? I mean do you think that your life is gonna be taken from you because you eat fruit from a single tree? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see how he's trying to pervert the gospel here, how he's trying to pervert the approach of man in a relationship with God. He's not saying, shake your fist at God, be a rebel. He's not saying, leave the garden, start your own life. He's saying, you know, that tree, it's really not that bad. I mean, surely you're not really going to die. In fact, I think that God doesn't want you to eat from it because as soon as you do, you're going to know good and evil just like him and you'll be like God. And this is the temptation that we have as followers of Jesus is that we make choices to live life in such a way that we, without knowing it and without intentionally saying it, try to put ourselves on an even playing field with God in understanding that we're in control of the relationship. Verse number 6, And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves when you allow your view of God when you allow a distorted reality for the gospel to influence your life what happens is it leads to shame and it leads to condemnation. It leads to us realizing and understanding that the very thing that was meant for our freedom, the very thing that was meant to rescue us, the very thing that was meant to set us free from the bondage and the slavery of sin in our life actually leads to us feeling condemned and rejected and ashamed as if we have to hide things, and cover up things, and live life in such a way that no longer do we allow things to be exposed fully, but there are certain things that we try to hide and cover up. It's just the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't resist it. I think we're good now. Here's my question to you. How do you go about living a godly life? How do you become godly? How do you grow in your faith? How do you become more Christ-like? And I want to submit to you if there's two approaches to answering that question. One is a tree of life approach and one is a tree of knowledge of good and evil approach. And my hope is that you, along with the church in Galatia and our church and all of us who call ourselves believers in Jesus, will allow the freedom that's found in the tree of life to drive our relationship. Let me help you understand it this way. One of these trees focuses on what you do. One of our approaches to being more godly focuses on what we do. Right? If I want to be godly, I've I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to spend more time with God in prayer i got to give more money to the church. i got to tell more people about Jesus. i got to make sure I don't miss too many Sundays in a year because God's up there keeping count. Right? He takes attendance every Sunday, and if I'm there, he'll be happy with me. And I'm going to be more godly because I'm going to make sure that he's proud of me, and I'm going to do all the right things, and I'm going to avoid all the wrong things. And what I do determines the godliness in my life. Or there's a focus on what Jesus has already done. We can focus on what we are to do, or we can focus on what Jesus has already done. The knowledge of good and evil tree says, focus on what you should do. Focus on doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things. But the tree of life says, focus on what Jesus has already done, because there's freedom in that for you. I love John chapter number 5, Verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You understand that? You focus so intently on the Scriptures and observing all the right things and you want to make... So certain that the Scriptures are central to your life, but you fail to realize that all the Scriptures point to me. And you don't come to me because you're so hung up on doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things. This is two totally different approaches to life. And maybe if you're like me at all and you've ever struggled with feeling like you have to do the right things in life, then there's freedom for you today in understanding that the true gospel, the gospel of grace, which is received by faith, says that we can focus on what Jesus has already done. And what he has already done is sufficient for us. And it's not like we have to do certain things to become someone for God. We become someone in God because he makes us new creations. And we can focus on what he's already done rather than what we are to do. Here's here's another way to look at it. One focuses on getting God's approval. You ever felt like you had to get God's approval? Like I think some of us view God as this angry king sitting on this massive throne in heaven that's just glaring down at us, waiting on us to mess up, waiting on us to make a mistake so that he can like send lightning and zap us. And it's almost like we have that God, that father up there that we just want to do enough good that he'll be proud of us, that we'll win his approval, right? If I can just be good enough, like if I can just live the life that I think that he wants me to live, if I can just do that, then God will approve of my life. And we get so entangled in this lifestyle that says, I've got to be good enough. I've got to do the right things. I've I've got to win the approval of God because if I can win the approval of God, that's what makes me godly. That's what makes me more mature. But the other approach focuses on receiving God's love, not fighting for his approval. That God offers for us love unconditional. That even when you miss the mark and you make mistakes and you blow it royally, God's not shaking a fist and pointing a finger at you and saying, I told you you weren't good enough. He's saying there's still love for you. There's still love. And it's, it's a freeing feeling. It, it gives so much freedom to our life in understanding that if we'll focus on receiving God's love instead of focusing on fighting for His approval, then God will make us into who he wants us to be. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't come and die for the perfect people. He doesn't expect you to look a certain way and act a certain way in order to receive his love. And to find his approval. He offers his love for all of us unconditional. Even when we were sinners. Even when we didn't have the slightest inclination towards wanting to follow Jesus. He loved us. And he paid the ultimate price for us. He demonstrated his love when he died on the cross. Not for the perfect people. Not for the righteous people. But for the sinners. Yet we find ourselves like so focused on, I got to be the right person so that God will approve of my life. As if he's that hard-nosed dad that you can never please. And that's not him. That's not him. First John chapter 4, verse 19, actually says that we love because he first loved us. The reason that we actually even love is because he loved us first. And if we want to truly love with the love of Jesus, then it's something that we receive from him that we're able to give to others. It's not something that we earn, it's not something that we work for, it's not something that our wages deserve. It's simply saying, I'm either going to focus on earning God's approval or I'm going to focus on receiving his love. Isn't receiving his love so much more freeing? Isn't there so much more freedom in saying, you know what, I don't have to fight for God's approval. I don't have to be someone that I know I'm not and, and become perfect in order for God to think of me as godly. But I can just receive his love and allow his love to influence and impact me. And then in turn, I become something because I've received something. Your view of God determines how you relate to God. I think it's simple. If you think that God's some dictator that's hard to please, then you're constantly going to feel this guilt, this shame, this condemnation, because you're never good enough. And you're always letting God down, and you always feel as if God's disappointed in you. I've been down this path some. I've lived a portion of my life So engrossed in the idea of God, I want to be who you want me to be, and I don't want to make mistakes, and I want to be absolutely perfect, and I want to set an example for people that that highlights complete godliness. And you know where it leads? It leads to shame because you'll never be good enough, it leads to condemnation because you failed. It leads to hiding things and covering things up because we feel like we don't want people to know the real us because the real us isn't who we think we have to be. There's no freedom in that. And we have people who follow Jesus, who gave the ultimate gift that's ever been given in life, who don't act free because they act like they were rescued from sin so that they can be in bondage to rules and regulations because they have to earn God's approval. The beautiful thing of the gospel is that we don't have to get our act together to come to God, but we can come to God and he'll help us get our act together. And this is a a stark contrast There's freedom in knowing, just as I am, I can come to Jesus and he knows everything about me. He's not surprised and he's not turned off by anything that I've done or that I'm doing. And I can come to him and I can trust that he'll help me become who he wants me to become. Here's the other way of looking at it. One focuses on an external duty. Like These are things I have to do. These are responsibilities. These are obligations. In order for me to become more godly, in order for me to become more Christ-like, I've got obligations and duties. I don't know about you, but from the time I was a child and I started being given chores and responsibilities, when I did those things, it never seemed fun. It never seemed freeing. I've worked jobs where I had responsibilities and duties that never seemed fun because they were obligations. It's almost as if I didn't get a choice in the matter. I was being forced to do something that given any normal choice on a normal day, I wouldn't choose to do that. And when we focus on our external duties, that can be our approach to God if we're not careful. and call myself a Christian, I guess if I get to go to heaven, i got to suffer some down here before I get there. And we have people in our churches who don't live free lives, who are so driven and focused on their duties and their responsibilities and their obligations to being a Christian that they think that those responsibilities are what determine their godliness. And you know the sad thing about it? is that as church leaders, we can fall into this trap of looking through that same lens, and when we look at people, we say, oh, well, they're not doing certain things, and so we've got to get them doing certain things so that they'll be more godly. Do you see how perverted the gospel can become when we're focused so differently? Rather than a tree of life, we focus on a tree of knowledge of good and evil, Rather than focusing on external duties, we can focus on an internal desire. It's not about what I have to do. It's about who I get to be in love with. Who I get to have a relationship with. It's about growing in my longing and desiring to love God. To get to know the creator of the world. To become passionate about knowing Him and loving Him and becoming more like Him. Here's what 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. So if you've ever felt like the commands of God, the things that you're told to do in Scripture, are like a burden it's like a chore, it's like a task, it's like an obligation or a duty, then, then you're seeing the gospel through perverted lenses. Because to love God is to obey God, but his commands are not burdensome. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you've got the Son of God, if you're in relationship with the creator of the world, then it's life-giving, It's not burdensome. If you feel like following Jesus is such a burden, oh my goodness, like I'm never good enough. I can never live up. I can never be good enough and do the right things. I keep screwing up. Man, I'm just a failure. God is so disappointed with me. Man, I wish I could just make him proud. I came to church and I want to sing this song, but I know the thought that I had this week and I know the argument that I had this week and I know the thing, so I might as well just not even pretend and I'm just going to sit here and just go through the motions because God is mad at me right now and hopefully this week I'll be better and if I can be better this week, then I'll make God happy and then next week I'll feel like it's okay for me to sing the song and mean the words or raise my hand or whatever it is. It's a perverted gospel. It's a gospel that says it's Jesus plus works. And there's no freedom in that. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. Now, it's important how we view this verse. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Angry God, if you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. You ever felt like that with your parents? Okay, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, and then you'll know I love you. Like we have to earn his love, like we have to do the right things. But the truth is, if you love him, you'll obey what he commands. If you truly love Jesus, then you'll want to do what he's asked you to do. You'll want to live a life that's pleasing to him. You'll want to live according to the principles that he's laid out for you. You don't do the things that he wants you to do because you want to be loved by him and prove your love, but rather because you love him, you reflect what he's asked you to do. It's a matter of either, either being before or after a comma. One way says, I'm going to work hard and do the right things, and it's almost like you're in bondage and you're in slavery to becoming someone who's loved or proving your love, and the other is like, I'm just going to focus on loving Jesus. And the more I love him, and the more I fall in love with him, he's going to make me more and more into his image so that I can become everything that he wants me to become. It's a, it's a freeing thing to know that there is a perverted gospel that we are free from. That we don't have to view God through the lens of doing things in order to earn his approval, but rather we can just focus on loving God and receiving his love and trust that he will transform and make us into what he wants us to be. Now, this doesn't give us a license to live any lifestyle that we want. We're going to talk about this at the end of Galatians in the last couple of chapters. But it's, it's something that Paul was so concerned about that he wanted to write this letter and let the church in Galatia know that this is a perverted gospel. Why are you allowing this to creep in to your church. And I want to challenge you like I challenge me to make sure that we're living in the tree of life, that our relationship with God is life-giving. And if we ever feel condemnation, if we ever feel trapped, it's because we're viewing our relationship wrongly. Let's continue. Verse number 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Remember, it's not man that you've got to win the approval of. It's not man that you're trying to look good in front of. It's God and God alone that we will stand before one day. And then i want to read the last portion of this first chapter. And this give us a challenge as we end our time together. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. His authority as an apostle was being questioned. The people who came along behind him said he didn't know what he was talking about. This is really how you follow Jesus. And Paul is defending his authority in Christ for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. I didn't seek the approval of man in my relationship. God called me. He set me apart by birth, and when he saw fit to come into my life and intersect my life and change my life, I received in him a new purpose, a new mission in life, a new reality for my life. I didn't have to fight to win it. God gave it to me. He called me into it. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, and I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They had only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. I love this verse. And they praised God because of me. They praised God because of me. I can give any of you a checklist or a set of rules, and you can check off all the items on that list, and you can follow all the rules, and it's not going to make you godly. It's not going to make you a follower of Jesus. Like Paul we realize that God calls us into relationship with Him. And He offers us rescue from ourselves and from this evil world and this present age that we live in. And He gives us a new reality and a new purpose and a new direction from life. It's not based on anything that man is trying to force on us or make us do. But it's a calling from God to become in Him something that we could never become on our own. And the result of having a proper view of God and the result of living a life in the freedom that's found in Christ is ultimately that others will praise God because of you. Now we can see people shaking fingers and telling people how they're doing wrong and telling people, you got to change this, you got to turn or you're going to burn, you got to fix this, you're going to hell we can get up and our, point our fingers at people and try to get them to do the right things and behave in certain ways. There's no freedom in that. And no one is going to praise God because of you if that's the life that you choose to live. But when you understand the love that God offers you and then you freely give that love to others, you'll see lives around you transformed. And you'll see people begin to see in you that God is doing something and that he's working in your life, and they'll see the result of that, and it'll lead them closer to Jesus as well. There is freedom in following Jesus. And if any form of your experience in following Jesus feels like prison, or it feels like you're condemned, or it feels like you aren't good enough, It's because you're eating off the wrong tree. And it's because you've allowed a perverted gospel to creep in to your experience. And like Paul, I want to stand today and just say, choose a tree of life. Focus on falling more and more in love with Jesus. Focus on allowing who he is to transform you. And if you'll do that, there's so much freedom that's found in Jesus Christ. And we do what he asks us to do, not out of obligation, but out of love and out of respect and out of an ultimate desire to have an incredible relationship with the creator of the universe. I think it's sad that many of us have better relationships with spouses or with children or with parents or with friends than we do with the creator of the universe simply because we seek to build our relationship on something that was never asked of us. Jesus offers love and he offers grace and when we receive that love and that grace, it transforms us and makes us more into his image and it is so freeing. There is such a weight that's lifted from our lives in understanding his purposes for us and walking and those purposes. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the freedom that's found in you. And like many of the church in Galatia, there's times that we allow perverted gospel to creep into our lives, and we find ourselves fighting for your approval. We find ourselves trying to perform the correct duties and responsibilities so that we'll win your approval in your love, but the truth is that you offer unconditional love for us, and if we simply receive that love, then we'll do things you asked of us, not out of obligation, but out of a privilege, out of a complete desire to be in you, everything that you've called us to be in you. And I pray, Father, right now, that if there's any men, women, or students who feel... Condemned because they're not good enough, or they feel trapped by the rules and the regulations that they see in Scripture, or they feel as if their view of you is incorrect. And right now, would you just allow your love to transform their lives? Would you allow them to receive in you the freedom that you offer and the grace that's unearned? and completely transforming. I thank you for your freedom, and I thank you for this letter that encourages us to have a correct view of the true gospel that represents all that you are for us.